You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Uh, Yesterday, when I got back from work on my way in, I met my family going to Nora's dance lesson. So I met her there at the dance place. And uh, Nora had gotten up a little late. The dance starts at like 4.45. And she got up a little late from her nap. So she was still pretty tired when she got there to the dance lesson. And since she was tired, she didn't want to go in, which was unusual because she loves going to dance. But she didn't want to go into dance. So I tried all these different, Adrian and I, we tried these different techniques to get her into the, the dance class. Uh, I tried bribing her with uh, different like games. We call them bwomp games. I throw her on the, the chair and say bwomp. She, that didn't work with her. That, that usually works with her. It didn't. She still didn't want to go in. I tried uh, taking her in and, and leading her by the hand and say, look how much fun they're having. You can go in. She didn't want to go in. And we were kind of like, oh, doing this thing, you know, kind of giving up. Or not giving up, but just not sure what to do. So I had to go to that uh spanking card. I had to pull that card out. That I didn't want to give her the message she could not do something because she was tired. So we were going to make her do it. Plus, dance class is super expensive. So we were going to make her do it no matter what. And I knew she was going to have fun. So I pulled out the spanking card. And I told her, because regular spankings are almost getting too... Uh, easy for her. So I threatened her with the wooden spoon spanking. And she's getting pretty smart already because I said, I'm going to spank your butt with the wooden spoon. And she goes, did you bring it? And <laughs> and uh, I said, no, but I'll spank her without the wooden spoon now. And then even worse when we get home. Uh, so she called my bluff there because really the whole thing was a bluff. I really didn't want to spank her at all. So I took her out of the room and started going downstairs toward the car and, and trying to really sell it like I was going to uh, give her a pretty big spanking when we got outside and saying, okay, we, if you go in, you're not going to get the spanking. So she finally decides to go in and avoids that. So I didn't actually have to spank her to get her into dance practice, which I was really thankful about because I don't think I was going to spank her. That was never my intention, mainly because... I hate spanking my kids in public. I've only done it like once or twice. Because what I'm always worried about is the judgment on it. And it might just be my insecurity with it. But in, you know, the days that we live in and the controversial thing with spanking, I'm worried that kind of everyone is, is looking, which they're probably not, but again, it's just a, uh, self-centered fear I probably have that I'll get judged on this. And really, it's kind of lose-lose. Whenever my, my kids are acting up, I get a little nervous. Because I'm afraid there's some people who are going to look at that and say, oh, you need to spank your kids and be thinking that you need to discipline your kids. They're getting out of hand. You need to get them to stop, you know, shouting and doing the crazy things they're doing. And then on the other hand, I think if I do spank them, I'll get the, you know, the thoughts, that's kind of child abuse. You shouldn't spank your kids. There's not, you know, research that proves that that's effective. And so I worry either way and I just kind of freak out and I really hope they don't make a scene or I actually have to do it. 
And probably the reason why I get so nervous about it, about that judgment, is kind of either way, no matter what, I think some people are going to judge me as a bad parent, whether I spank him or not spank him. And really the reason why I do that is because I do that uh, from time to time. I wouldn't say everyone, but you know, once in a while I catch myself making those types of judgments on people where I look at some outward thing and come to some conclusion about their inward heart and sort of their feelings towards something. And so we, we all do this. This is part of our sinful nature of looking at something outward and coming to a conclusion about that person on the inside. And so we will judge, you know, how do we judge who's a good parent? We'll look at things, you know, are their kids listening? Are they being obedient? Are they polite? And not always, but sometimes we'll come to those judgments about the parents. Or it, it goes really with everything. How do we judge Who's a good employee or who's a good worker? We look at outward things, like are they on time? Do they work hard? Do they make money for the company? Look at those outward things and then come to a conclusion about the heart of that person or the condition of that person based on those outer things. How do we judge who's successful? We look at outward things. Do they have a a good, nice family? Do they have a nice house, nice cars, possessions? Looking at outer things and judging an inner condition. Now let's get a little trickier with this because if we're honest, we can probably all relate to this in some extent. How do we judge then if we're happy? It's the same kind of thing. We look at some sort of outward thing or it really comes down to a feeling. If we have a certain feeling, we decide we're happy. If we don't have that feeling, we decide we're not happy. How do we decide we're depressed? Not clinically, but just, you know, kind of down so again, it's that feeling. We look at that feeling and decide, hey, I'm going to feel that way. I'm, I'm sad. And again, I'm not talking clinically, but just the down in the dumps kind of thing. Now let's get even another step trickier than this. And this is really what we're going to deal with is, how do we judge if we're okay with God? And we do the same thing. We look at some outward thing, some sort of blessing, material thing, and come to a conclusion about our relationship with God, even though those two things aren't necessarily connected. Or not even with us, but with other people. We do it both ways. Looking at other people and what's going on in their life, coming to a conclusion about their relationship with God, or looking at our own lives, what's going on in our own lives, and coming to some sort of conclusion about our relationship with God based on the things we're facing in our lives. So we look at these things like material blessings, for example. If I'm getting a lot of blessings uh, materially, like maybe got more money, got a nicer house, we generally kind of make the assumption, God must be blessing us. God must be happy with me because He's giving me more stuff. Or if we're more people, let's say more people are coming to our thing, coming to our church, coming to our, our meeting... Well, God must be blessing that thing because there's more people coming. There's some some fruit from that. Most of all, though, it, it comes down to our feelings. If we feel good about something, we generally assume God must feel good about that. If we feel bad about something, generally we'll assume God must feel bad about that. And it's all this same sort of problem we're going to look at tonight in Job. And it's about judging our own or other people's relationships with God based on what we see going on externally in our lives or their lives. (laughs) And really, what's what's behind this? Well, wait, before we get to that, I mean, the opposite is kind of true too. We talked about 
Good things mean we must be getting, you know, on a good terms with God. But then we look at bad things. I have bad feelings a lot of times. I feel distant from God. God must be mad at me. Things are being taken away from me. I'm losing things. God must be mad at me. In my, my ministry is kind of not looking good. Things aren't looking good around me. God must be mad at me. In both ways, we look at the good and the bad and some to, come to some conclusion about how God feels about this. And behind this thinking, or underneath this thinking, is we have an issue with sowing and reaping. And that, that's what's behind this. Now, I'm going to explain. I don't want to sound condescending, but I've used these terms with my students in school, and they don't always understand what sowing and reaping means. So I, I, I just want to make sure everyone... Again, I don't want to be condescending. I just want to make sure everyone knows, because we're not farmers around here. And uh, sowing is to plant something. Reaping is to harvest it. So there's, you know, that expression, what you reap, you, you sow, or you sow what you reap. What we put in the ground is what we're going to get eventually from it. And we get that idea because the Bible says it. So there's nothing wrong with that idea necessarily. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. So because things like this, I mean, it's, it's kind of easy to see why we come to this conclusion. We look at this stuff going on in our lives, come to conclusions about our relationship. Here's what I'm reaping right now. Here's what's happening in my life, what I'm harvesting. That must mean I've sown something earlier that reflects what's going on, whether it's good or whether it's bad. If we're reaping good things, we say, I've sown good things. If we're reaping bad things, I've sown bad things. But we forget the next verse in Galatians. That really helps us to understand this. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And then it says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So sowing the Spirit reaps the Spirit. And this kind of helps us to get at this problem that we face of judging our own or other's relationship with God based on what's happening. That's what Job's friends do. We're going to start in the book of Job, getting into what Job's friends start telling him. We're at Job chapter 4. We'll go over four chapters tonight because it's kind of one conversation. We'll go through that quickly, but we don't want to lose what's going on in the narrative of, of what's going on. But the story of Job, just a quick recap, is that Job was a blessed man, physically, materially. Everyone would say that he was blessed. He was uh, the most blessed man in the East, it says. He had great possessions, great wealth. He had a lot of kids. He had everything going for him. But most of all, he feared God. It says he was an upright and blameless man. And God knew that. God was proud of Job. We can't. We get this perspective that God is not punishing Job. He was proud of him. And so what happens with Job is Satan approaches God and says, I've been walking around on the earth. God says, have you seen my servant Job when you were doing that? How he's a blameless and upright man? And so he points out Job to Satan, and then Satan accuses Job and says, well, of course he's an upright man, because you give him everything he wants. You bless him. Obviously he's going to worship you. Take away that stuff, and he'll curse you to your face. And God gives Satan permission to do that. So Job's possessions are taken away. Everything is worked for. His kids die. And that's just like round one. All of his kids die. He had seven kids, and they're dead. The house falls on them. And what Job says is, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin 
or uh, curse God. So then Satan comes back to God and says the same thing. He's been going to and fro on the earth. Well, then God says again, Satan, did you see what Job did? He didn't curse me to my face. I took away his stuff, and like you accused him, and he didn't curse me to my face. And Satan says again, accused him, well, of course he didn't curse you to your face. He still has his health, skin for skin. Take that away, and he's going to curse you to your face. So God says, okay, Satan, take away his health. Just don't kill him. So then Job, his health is gone. He gets some sort of skin disease with boils and cracks, and and... His health is gone. His wife tells him to curse God and die. And Job says, no, we can't accept good from God if we won't accept bad as well. And in all this, Job did not curse God with wrong. And that's kind of the setup there. And Job doesn't know all this. Job doesn't know that it's God who brought Job up to Satan. And he doesn't know that it's God who gave Satan permission to do all this. He's just left kind of wondering what's going on. And then we read last week, the first thing, well, Job's friends show up. He has three friends that show up to try to help him. And after a week of mourning, Job says, I wish that I never even existed. I wish I would have died as a baby, and I wish I would die right now. Those are the first words from his mouth. He went over that last week. And so tonight we'll see his friends start to talk to him, to try to comfort him. And we'll read about Eliphaz, who is the first friend, who kind of points this out to Job, what I've been saying. Well, if there's something bad going on in your life right now, it's because you've done something bad before. You've sown bad, and now you're reaping bad. That's their perspective, the friends. Job's perspective is the opposite. Well, he he thinks he has a reaping problem. I shouldn't be reaping the things I'm reaping because I've sown good things. So these two things aren't matching up. And they come to the same conclusions that we do. Job, you must have done something bad because bad things are happening to you. And Job says, no, that doesn't make any sense. I've been doing the right things. I haven't been sowing the bad things. The problem is what I'm reaping. But we get to see, again, God's perspective on this that they don't get. And as we read this conversation between these two guys, what, what we'll see is that because we cannot gauge God's relationship with us and others based on circumstances and situations, we need to trust God by faith. Sometimes they correlate, but not always. We want to be very, very careful before we jump to conclusions about our own relationship with God based on what we're seeing around us. And we'll get to that. This problem with sowing and reaping or this misunderstanding with sowing and reaping and how these two things work together. So the first thing is, we'll start in Job chapter 4. And Eliphaz uh, starts talking to Job and, and what his perspective is, Job must have a sowing problem. If bad things are happening to Job, his house is destroyed, his possessions are gone, his kids are dead, his health is gone... If he's reaping that now, that means he must have sown something terrible in his past that God is doing something about. So let's start at Job chapter 4. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, And you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? And so this is the first thing out of his friend's mouth. 
after Job curses God, says he, he wishes he were dead, he goes like three verses before he starts getting really negative on Job. I mean, he's pretty much saying, Job, you've helped a lot of people. You've strengthened the weak knees. You've helped people when bad stuff was happening to them. But now that it's happening to you, you're wondering what's going on. He says, is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? He's pretty much saying, have you really been good? Have you been sowing the right things? Have you been doing godly things? Because if you were, this wouldn't be happening to you right now. That's the implication. And he says it directly in a few verses. Now I ask here, I wonder, I mean, what was he expecting? I mean, the friends show up. That, I, I commend them for that. The friends come, when they hear about what happens to Job, his three friends show up and try to help them, trying to help him. And even for seven days, they don't say a word because Job doesn't say a word for seven days. But then when Job speaks up what we read last week, how he, he curses God, or he curses his birth, he never curses God, he curses his birth and wishes that he were dead. If his friends are like me, what I think going on is they were shocked. Or they're, this wasn't going to be as easy as they expected. I mean, probably, again, if, if he's like me and I'm putting myself here because I'm a sinner and I'm selfish and I do dumb things, I'm thinking he, he was trying to show outward support. Yeah, Job, I'm there for you, buddy. I'll be here. But as soon as Job makes it difficult, he doesn't just say, oh, thanks, man. Just pray for me. You know, I hope it works out. I think it kind of shocks the friends because they're not nice at all. I mean, why would they come there and try to help? And in three verses, he says, Job, you've done this. You've helped people with this. But now it's so hard. Now you can't handle it. They're not very comforting long. Again, it's like three verses. And then it's about 30 chapters of here's what you've done wrong, Job. And we can probably relate to both people, like I can, to Job and to the friend, to the friend who just wants it to be easy. I want to show up, I want to pray for the person and not really get super involved in it. And Job here is not letting his friends do that. He's not saying, okay, pray for me, everything's going to be fine. He says how much it hurts. And this is a lot of times what we tend to avoid. I tend to avoid these. You know, we'll come to church and talk about you know, our, the things we do over the week, talk about politics, talk about whatever things, instead of bringing up what's really bothering us. And when we do, it tends to be, I don't want to get that open and share. I'll just, you know, pray for me. And then that's good. I know when I hear that, I'm kind of like, whew, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't actually have to do anything. I just need to pray. Which, yeah, praying is great. But I, again, in the sinful part of me, I get a little bit of that relief that it's almost the easy thing. Now what we got to talk about here in Job, it's going to come up a lot, is this idea of religious platitudes. And that's what is going on here with the friends. That's what they wanted to do, was give him religious platitudes. And when Job didn't let them get away with that, then they start pointing out sin in Job's life. Here's what you've been doing wrong. Now here's what a religious platitude is. I looked it up on Wikipedia, which means I did tons of research on it. Uh, this is all... You know, very research-based. Here's what Wikipedia says about platitude. I just like the way they defined it. It says a platitude is a trite, meaningless, or prosaic statement generally directed at quelling social, emotional, and cognitive unease. They are thought-terminating cliches. So a platitude is just something you say to hopefully end the conversation. They're like conversation enders. Here's the ones... We say, 
I know because I've, I've heard them, I've said them. People have said them to me, I've said them to others. We tend to fall back on these religious platitudes. I don't think we're trying to be mean, but I think we just don't know what to say. Or we don't expect maybe someone to pour out like Job did here. All things will work out for good. A religious platitude. It's just kind of hoping, yeah, I hope that shuts it down. All things end up for good. That doesn't really help someone in a situation like Job is in. His kids just died. All things will work out for good. How, that, I don't think that helps. That wouldn't help me. God has a plan. In religious platitude, it just ends conversation. Yeah, He does. What else can you say? Everything happens for a reason. A religious platitude, it just shuts down conversation. Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? Is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? God won't give you more than you can handle. When God opens a door, or when God closes a door, He opens a window. Maybe God is trying to show you blank. Or the most common one, I'll pray for you. And I don't want to sound like these are like terrible things to say because it's what the Bible says, but when we use these types of things as religious platitudes, someone is hurting, someone is crying out, someone is going through life stuff that's hard. Just throwing out stuff like this, hoping it ends conversation, because that's really, that's why I do it. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can really get involved. God has a plan. You know, that, that's just it. And now, if again, if the friends are like me, sinful like me, which they are because we're all sinners, I'm thinking they wanted to show some support to Job. He wanted, they wanted Job to just say, thanks guys for showing up, just pray for me. And that's the end of it. But again, Job cries out. Job goes into detail about it. And then they start, at least, well, they're somewhat offering these things, but then they point the finger at him. They're judging Job. Here's what's wrong about your relationship with God. If your kids are dying, if your house is destroyed, if your possessions are gone, you must have sown some bad things. If you're reaping bad things now, you've sown some bad things in the past. And that's what he gets to next. Go to verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of His anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And so he says it straight out. You reap what you sow. Those who, are, uh, those who sow trouble reap the same. If bad things are happening to you now, it means you did something in the past that's causing that. God is unhappy with you. It's that judgment on that, the relationship based on what's going on now. And this, this kind of creeping, or this kind of thinking creeps up in us all the time. Like, for example, the other day my wife Adrian uh, was listening to a sermon. And there's nothing wrong with the sermon. I don't want to you know, pick on it. It was just something that kind of made her question a little bit. She said it was good. Things were good. It was a nice message, good message. But partway through it, the, the preacher made this little statement that isn't wrong, but he said that ever since... He became a Christian. He's never felt guilt or condemnation. If theologically that's true, you know, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And even practically that might be true for him. You know, that's great. Again, there's not really anything wrong with saying that, but she said what that made her think is, I felt guilt and condemnation since I've been a Christian. So then looking at that bad feeling, she came to this conclusion about God. 
Again, am I trusting God enough? Is God mad at me? And I, am I doing something wrong? And that's that kind of thinking. I have a bad feeling. That must mean there's something wrong with my relationship with God. It's looking at a, an outer thing and coming to a conclusion about how God feels about us. This is not what it means to reap what you sow. We'll get to that in a minute. See, if I'm feeling guilt and condemnation, or whatever it is, that, that feeling, does that mean something about how God feels about me? I mean, not necessarily. And that's our sowing problem, our conceptualizing this idea of sowing wrong. We try to gauge God's approval or disapproval with us based on what we're seeing in our lives. If we're reaping doubt and condemnation, we must have done something wrong. If we're reaping blessing and happiness, we must have done something right. Now we're going to get back to this idea, but it's not true necessarily. We want to be careful before we jump to that conclusion. But that's what Eliphaz jumps to right away. Well, Job, look at what's going on in your life. You did something wrong. So let's go on now. Verse 12. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, where deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom." So now Eliphaz goes into, he, he had a vision of, of a spirit approaching him and asking him this question. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And what he's getting at is you're not innocent, Job. No one is innocent. And those questions are the key point in what he's saying. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Now that question is right in principle, but it has the wrong setup. I mean, there's a lot we're going to kind of leave dangling for a minute and then wrap it up as we get into the, the story here. But it's, again, he's telling Job, you're not innocent, you've done something wrong. That's the reason why all this is happening. So let's go now to chapter 5. Call out now. Still Eliphaz talking. Call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And he's saying, Job, there's no one here who can help you. Because, again, it keeps coming back to this, you've done something wrong. 
You've sown something wrong with God, which is why you're reaping these things now. And that it's verses 6 and 7 that, that bring that message out. Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. He said, Job, this is happening for a reason. There is a reason for this. God has a plan in this. He's trying to show you that you've been doing something wrong. This stuff doesn't just happen out of nowhere. You have been sowing some bad things. So then verse 8, But as for me... I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. And so here's kind of the religious platitude. Look to God. If all this bad stuff is happening now, God is trying to show you something, so look to God. Again, that's the right answer. It's obviously the right answer, but the wrong setup. If we think, again, Joe, put yourself in Job's shoes. Some of you have been there. Some of you have been close to there. I can only imagine Job has lost his kids. He's lost everything he's worked for his entire life. And his friend is saying, that all happened. God killed your kids because you did something wrong. And now he's saying, just look to God. I don't think I'd be looking to God and like, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. I'm going to look to God because you're telling me he killed my kids because I did something wrong. Why would I look to that God? That sounds terrible. Does it help someone who's going through that? Just look to God. What Eliphaz is saying is Job has sown bad things. That's why he's reaping what he is. But remember, the first part of the book, chapters 1 and 2, this gives us the perspective, God's point of view. Was that true? Was Job sowing wrong? He wasn't. It says he was a blameless. He was an upright man. God was pleased with him. God was bragging about Job to Satan. So we know that he didn't have a sowing problem. We get that perspective. He doesn't know. His friends don't know. But he didn't have a problem with what he's sowing. And that tells us, Not everything we do is evil. We can sow righteously. We can sow according to the Spirit. And so we know that that is not what's going on here. Job is not sowing the wrong thing, and that's why God has done all these things. So when he says, look to God, you've done something wrong, that's not the case here. And let's finish up what he says. Verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age, as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, it is true. Hear and know it for yourself. And so the last part of his speech here to Job is, 
Look, God is, He's just disciplining you. Just look to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, you're suffering now, your kids died, but God is just correcting you. He's disciplining you. If you look at the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, He's going to bless you in the end. So just stick through it, brother. Hey, just keep pressing forward. God, you know, God has a plan with this. But, again, we know that's not what's going on here. We saw God's perspective in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, He's right, but with the wrong setup. This happens a lot here with Him. Does God discipline those whom He loves? Yes, He does. It says that clearly in the book of Hebrews. If God does not discipline you, that means train you. It means you're not his kid. You're only going to discipline your own kids. And if you're, if he's not molding you and shaping you and conforming you into the image of his son, it means you're an illegitimate child is what it says in Hebrews. So yes, God does discipline us. But what he's saying is that religious platitude of he has a plan in this, just look to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you'll see it through, and then you'll be super happy afterwards. So he's telling him, and to, to sum this up, that he has a sowing problem. We've judged others on this, and we've judged ourselves on this. See, something bad is happening to me. What have I done? What's the, what have I sown that I'm reaping this right now? But more often, at least with me, it's this. I feel bad about my relationship with God. What have I done? Why am I reaping this right now? What have I sown to, to explain that. I feel bad, so where is God? I feel distant from God, so where is He? I feel bad. How is God unhappy with me? This all shows we have a problem with our conception of sowing. And we'll get to the bottom of all this in a minute. So now let's go to Job. Job responds here. And where Eliphaz says, Job, you have a problem with what you're sowing. You've done something wrong, now bad things are happening. Job thinks the opposite. And we do this as well. Job says, no, I actually have a reaping problem. See, I've been sowing good things. I should be getting good things now. I've been godly. I've been going to church. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been helping people. I've been loving people. I should be getting something good right now. I should be getting blessings right now. That's what Job says in his response. So let's read Job chapter 6. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. And so he responds here. I think a good response. He said, why can't I complain? Eliphaz, my friend, you came here to help me and you're just telling me all the, I've probably done something wrong. I can complain. I can talk. I can curse the day I was born. I can say, God, I wish you had killed me. It's not a great attitude. Sure, but when God shows up in chapter 38, He never yells at Job for responding like this. Why can't I complain? Don't I have a right? If you weighed all the things happening to me, it would be as heavy as the sand of the sea. God Himself has struck against me. I can complain about this. I can vent my frustrations. Verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that He would loose His hand and cut me off. 
then I would still have comfort. Though in anguish I would exalt, he will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me, and is success driven from me? And he goes back to what he says. Kill me, God. That's what he's asking. He says, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing I long for. He's longing for death. He's wanting God to kill him. His life, everything he's worked for is being taken away. Then, he says, I would have my comfort. And then he says, I'm not strong enough for this anymore. I can't keep going. That's why I wish God would just kill me right now. But verse 10 shows Job's thinking. He says, For I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. In other words, what he's saying is, I've done what God has told me. I've been doing the godly things. He made sacrifices to God. He was even making sacrifices for his kids to make sure they were covered. He was a holy, upright, blameless man. He was doing the godly thing. God was proud of him. And we, like I say, we do the same thing. I've been praying, reading the Bible, serving in church. I've been doing the right things. I've not concealed the words of the Holy One. Why then, if I'm sowing that, why am I reaping trouble? Why am I reaping terrible things? Now this thinking makes sense. But what it shows is that we think we can manipulate God. And I've thought this way, all these things, I mean, I can speak from experience because this is what I do. I think because I've put in X, I should get Y from God. I've done these things, so God should give me those things. I've sown good things, so I should be reaping blessings. And we think we can control them that way. And then we're not reaping what we want to reap then we get angry at God, and we do like what Job is doing here. So let's go on to verse 14. We're going to leave some of this hanging to, to bring it together at the end. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice, and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say, bring something to me? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the enemy's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the oppressors? Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede, my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? And he turns to his friends and tells him, you're not helping me. Look at what's going on in my life. You can't just point out and say, assume something's wrong with my relationship with God. You're not helping. You can't just give me religious platitudes and think everything is going to be okay. 
Now again, at least his friends show up. We've got to commend them for showing up, being there for him. But what he's comparing them to is a stream. That in w- uh, winter, it's flowing. That in certain seasons, the stream is flowing. But then when a, a traveler in summer is going through the land and he needs something to drink, he'll go to the stream thinking there'll be water there. But when he gets there, the water's dried up. And he's disappointed. And that's what he says his friends are like. You're there all the time, but when I really need you, you have nothing to say to me. You have no way of helping me. You're just pointing out everything wrong with me. He's saying, I didn't ask you for anything. I didn't ask you to bring something to me. I didn't ask you for money. I didn't ask you to deliver me from the enemy's hand. I didn't ask me to rescue me from the hand of the oppressors. I just asked for help. He says, teach me and I'll hold my tongue. But he concludes in verse 29, concede my righteousness still stands. I know, he's saying, that I've sown good. There's no reason why I should be reaping what I'm reaping right now. Then he continues in chapter 7. Is not there a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade? And like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. He's just telling his friends. He's crying out to them. It's hard. He says he can't sleep anymore. When he lies down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? The nights are so long, he can't sleep. He's in so much pain and anguish. He talks about his skin. His flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. I mean, that's the, the health that was taken from him. It's hard. And then he's, he just says, again, why am I still here? I'm going to die soon. Just kill me now. There's no point in going on. Now let's finish out the chapter. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So he decides now to turn to God and complain to God. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently but I will no longer be. 
God, why won't you leave me alone? These are good questions that as believing Christians, we really should ponder this because our faith will hold up even against questions like these, but these are good questions. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? And what he's saying is, am I really that bad, God? I've been doing godly things. Am I so bad that you're going to kill my kids and take away my health? I'm not a sea serpent. What's your problem with me? Why are you fixed on me? And whenever he's looking to something for help, my bed will help. I get nightmares. You don't give me a moment of rest. And then he says, verse 17, What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? And the Psalms that said is like an expression of joy, like we're so little, why does God care about us in a good way? But here you're saying in a bad way. God, why do you care so much about what we do? We're just people. Why do you test us every moment? Why do you not look away from me? Then verse 20 and 21. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? What have I done against you, God, that I deserve this? And if I have, verse 21, why don't you just pardon me? If I've hurt you so bad, why can't you just forgive me? Am I really so bad? And the answer, you know, we got God's perspective on this, is no. He does not have a sowing problem. He's been sowing godly things. If God's merciful and loving, why am I suffering? If I'm doing the right things... Why is God doing this to me? Why does He let other people get away with things and and do these to me? I wouldn't say that I've reacted this intensely, but I've thought the same thoughts. I've been doing godly things. Why is this happening to me? When we had a miscarriage over the summer, it's those thoughts. I try to please you, God. Why does this happen? Thinking, because I'm putting in this, I should be getting this from God. So we need to wrap this up. We need to get to the bottom of this. Does Job have a sowing problem? Has he done something wrong that's causing God to do this like Eliphaz says? Does Job have a reaping problem that he deserves to be getting good things from God because he's done good things? Let's go back to what this really means now. We've got to bring Jesus into the picture because that's what we believe. So Galatians 6, let's go back to there and wrap this up. It says again, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So we've got to understand what we're sowing and what we're reaping. It says what we sow is either the flesh or the Spirit. If we sow the flesh, we reap the flesh. If we sow the Spirit, we reap the Spirit. See, what we tend to think, here's where we get it wrong. We sow the Spirit, we should be reaping the flesh. We're doing godly things, so we should be getting blessings. See, that's fleshly things, not spiritual things. When we're doing godly things and expecting to get blessings and good things and good feelings, that's not what it says we reap. We reap spiritual things when we sow the spiritual. Now, what, what's that mean? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what it means to sow the flesh. And what it means to sow the Spirit and reap the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36 says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. In what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. 
But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. I mean, He's saying, here's where we've got to start to understand the sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow has to die. If you sow a seed in the ground, the seed has to die before it will grow anything. That's what sowing means. The thing has to die. So what do we sow? Romans 6 Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, this is all over the New Testament. What it says is, you die to your old self when you lay down your life and follow Jesus. You identify with Jesus' death. You you recognize that Jesus died for you on the cross to pay for your sin. And since he had to die, that person he died for had to die too. It doesn't mean you're perfect instantly, but you're saying, I'm laying down my life. I'm not living for myself anymore, living for my own pleasures, my own wants, my own dreams, but that person is going to die. You identify with with Christ's death. Whatever you sow in the ground must die. That is what we put in the ground, our old person, our old fleshly sinful nature is what is sown. You cannot sow anything unless it dies. Continuing on 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42, but so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. See what this says. Since Jesus died for our sin, since He paid the full penalty for our sin, we must die to ourselves. We have to identify with that death. That's what Jesus means when He says, lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow Me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. If we do that, we're sowing ourselves. What you sow must die. What this says, Jesus resurrected from the grave. Jesus himself was sown into the ground with his death in the tomb. For three days he was dead. But he rose from death. He physically resurrected from the grave in a glorified state. And the Bible says he's the first fruits of the resurrection. That's going to happen to all of us if we sow, if we die to ourselves and sow that. This is what we reap. We sow the Spirit, we reap the Spirit. And since Jesus resurrected from the grave, we too resurrect from the grave when He comes back in a glorified state. That's what it means here. It says, when we die in Christ, we sow dishonor. We put to death our dishonorable, sinful, fleshly, disgusting self. We put that in the ground and we reap in corruption. When we die in Christ, we sow dishonor, we reap glory. When we die in Christ, we sow weakness, we reap power. When we die in Christ, we sow a natural body, we reap a spiritual body. See, this is the spiritual reaping. 
When you sow the Spirit, you reap the Spirit. And that's what it says here. We will live in a perfect world with Jesus in the very presence of God, with no sin, no corruption. All that was put to death, and it's reaped spiritually in a new physical existence. That's where we're headed. And we leave that out of things so much. We think what we reap in this world is physical, material blessings. I've been doing good things here, so I should be getting that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in this life. But that's not the life we're living for. We're living for the next one, where we are reaped spiritually when we die to ourselves and decide to follow Jesus. See, this is the gospel. This is what we're missing when we judge our relationship with God based on something we're feeling or experiencing in our lives. Reaping spiritual things. That's what the Bible says. We reap the Spirit. Reaping spiritual things means we'll reap a spiritual body at the resurrection of the dead because we've died to ourselves to be raised with Jesus. This is the problem with thinking that sowing spiritual things or reap physical things. I've done the right things. Why am I not getting the blessings? I've ruined it. But here's the truth. You can't ruin it. You can't ruin the gospel. You can't ruin what Jesus has done for you. You're not that powerful. You know, this process of dying physically, dying to the flesh, and reaping spiritually starts the second you die to yourself. The second you sow that seed, when you sow that, you won't fully reap it till Jesus returns. But you start that right now. It says in John chapter 5, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Here's the point in this. Here's how it will end. We cannot judge our own relationship with God or others' relationship with God based on what we see or what we feel. See, if that were true, we would have no need of faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is knowing that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, so we died with Him. Faith is knowing that Jesus rose from death because the penalty was paid, so we will rise with Him. Faith is knowing that Jesus has prepared a place for us, and if it were not so, He would not have told us. So we cannot look at our lives or our feelings and come to conclusions about our relationship with God, not necessarily. Bad things don't mean that God is unhappy with you. Good things don't mean that God is happy with you. Yes, you do reap what you sow. That's what the Bible says. But what you reap is spiritual life, not earthly blessings. If we ever think differently than this, like I said, we're undermining the gospel. If you've died with Christ, you'll be raised with Christ. Jesus won't start something in you that he'll not bring to completion. So we walk by faith, not by sight. No matter what's happening in our lives, we keep pressing forward to the goal. So the Holy Spirit through Paul says this best in the letter to the Philippians. It says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship. Or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.